0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. By many measures, Henry Nouwen had attained greatness. He was a successful Catholic priest, a writer, and a professor at some of the most prestigious universities in the world but after 25 years in the priesthood and 20 years as a professor at Harvard University, he writes, I began to experience a deep inner threat. As I continued into my 50s, I came face to face with the simple question, did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? What a question that's worth pondering. and explains, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with burning issues. Everyone was saying that I was doing really well, but something inside was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. And so, as he tells in his wonderful little book, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nowen decided to move into the large Community for Mentally Disabled People, a wonderful Christian ministry. And he did so, feeling that God had told him, Go and live among the poor in spirit, and they will heal you. Notice, he didn't say, didn't use the words, and you will heal them. It was for Henry, and they will heal you. Now, and writes, So I moved from Harvard to L'Arche, from the best and the brightest, wanting to rule the world, to men and women who had few or no words, and were considered at best marginal to the needs of our society. It was a very hard and painful move, and I am still in the process of making it. But now and explains he continued on in this journey, embracing what he called a small, hidden life, as a life-saving way to let go of power, to let go of control, and to follow the humble way of Jesus. He was entering into a life marked by humility and vulnerability and cruciform love. In other words, this was his journey into servanthood, and you and I are invited into the same. Servanthood. This is an essential calling for the Christian life, for one who wants to follow Jesus. Servanthood. But it's a difficult calling. Because by impulse and by training socially, we want to be first. We're seduced by what we might call firsthood, the condition of wanting to be great, to be recognized, to be influential, to be a somebody by the measures of the world. And yet by God's grace, we're called into something different, something so different it often pulls us in the almost exact opposite direction from when we were where we were originally headed towards. Servanthood. And we're going to talk about this in four parts as we encounter this theme across this passage. First, the temptations of firsthood. Secondly, the dangers of firsthood. Thirdly, the greatness of servanthood. And finally, the secret of Servanthood. So, first, let's take a look at the temptations of firsthood. See, the disciples that Jesus was walking with wanted to be first. Great. They hear him refer to himself as the Son of Man on multiple occasions. We hear about one instance in the beginning of our passage here in verses 30 through 32. And by using that phrase, Son of Man, the disciples' minds immediately would have gone to Daniel 7 from where that phrase came. And there they would have remembered this vision of a human-like figure who descended and was seated upon the throne of God. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, and a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Jesus, of course, was clear in identifying himself as the Son of Man that he would, however, be killed, suffering for his people. And yet the disciples almost didn't have a capacity to hear it. They misunderstood. They believed what lay in Jesus's future was regime change, political revolution, the overthrow of Rome, who were oppressing God's people right there in their land. They were, in a sense, preparing to storm the capital, as it were, seeking regime change by force and violence. And they concluded that Jesus' rise in power would surely spell their own rise in prominence and power. And so the natural conversation became, well, who would be top dog among us then? Who would be in charge Who would be the greatest? Of course, we have a similar kind of longing in our hearts. You might even call it a lust in our hearts, a deep desire to be great, to seek greatness. Now, it might not be to the scale and with the effects that the disciples had in their hearts. You may not be a seeker of public fame per se, but don't so many of us carry within us A desire for recognition, if not from the watching world out there, even just recognition on our street blocks, even in amongst our family members, our friends. Do we win their admiration? Do we have their respect? We live with a desire for control, to be able to make commands and to expect them to be fulfilled, whether in the workplace or again, in our homes. We, we desire to be first in a way that makes us want to not serve but to be served. Uh, uh, notice me first in my home, in our community, indeed around the world. In places and moments of conflict, you apologize to me first. We live with a longing for firstness in our relationships, in our vocations, in our lives. And we even have, don't you, a buzzing anxiety in our hearts about whether or not we're gonna get mine. This is true not only of us as individuals, but also even of churches, church communities. Unfortunately, too often the church in America has come to be known for a desire to accumulate further political and cultural power for itself, to be first in line culturally as it were, or at least it's oftentimes most disturbed among all, the, all other things to be disturbed by, by its own loss of cultural influence and power. Now, and later on in that same book, writes this, The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Those who resisted this temptation to the end and thereby give us hope are the true saints. Dear friends, do you see the temptations of firsthood in your life? Where do you see this lust for greatness most? But secondly, we also see the dangers of firsthood. See, this lust for greatness, actually, it's killing us. It's harming our relationships, first of all. You even see this among the disciples. Their pursuit of greatness is actually the beginning of an argument. It fractures relationships. It creates envy and strife. It makes our relationships essentially competitive. Are are you first in line or am I? Are you getting your way or am I? Are you getting attention and recognition or am I? In fact, it's not surprising that these very same disciples seem to have a tribal view of those around them. We see this in verses 38-41 where John complains to Jesus after doing ministry out and about. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. He wasn't on our team. This narrowly defined sense of team. He's not a part of our tribe. Jesus counters him by saying, don't stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will no one, sorry, no one who does a mighty work in my name will, soon, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, Jesus has a much more expansive view of team, of family, of tribe, anyone who ministers in My name, even if they're not part of our little crew here, is part of the work of the kingdom. But no, our lust for greatness, our desire for our firsthood, harms our relationships making us tribal. It even exposes our inability to form relationships themselves. Uh, Nowen writes this, uh, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. Nauman continues, one thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. He explains that so many people, and maybe even some of us, who gravitate towards greatness are actually people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships, and who've opted for power and control Instead, he says, many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. Uh, We don't want to open our hearts. And so instead, we open up power structures and ways to maintain control of our environment and of other people. Uh, This way of living harms our relationships. It actually also harms our neighbors, those immediately around us as well. Uh, We see this in verse 42, where Jesus warns whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. This warning about the way in which those who are seeking greatness so often trample over those who are vulnerable, trampling over them in order to get ahead. Have you been doing that recently in the workplace or on your street blocks? No, or, or rather even manipulating people around you, keeping them in line just so that you can be first, first in attention, first to comfort, first to recognition, again, even in our own households. Jesus warns us about the ways in which we harm people by our pursuit of greatness, but also we need to recognize the way that we harm ourselves. We make ourselves miserable by this lust, Our lives are swallowed up by envy, resentment, comparison, uh, by addiction to image management, or even a kind of resentment that's rooted in entitlement. I deserve better. I deserve to be first. It makes us deeply miserable. It makes us broken on the inside and even in our relationships again. The way in which we live for the applause of Others, maybe your boss, or maybe you're just dying to hear a compliment from your roommate or your spouse and you're manipulating conversations in order to hear it. Or maybe it's the way in which we harm ourselves by overlooking sin in our lives because we're too busy trying to get ahead, too busy trying to establish recognition for ourselves. Jesus warns us against this when he gives us this very grave warning about the power of sin, calling us to do whatever it takes in order to defeat sin, lurking sin in our hearts. He says in verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Wow. If it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus dis- isn't contradicting what the Bible describes as security for those who are in Christ. It- it's not to say just when you make mistakes, therefore your whole soul all over again is in danger to hell and judgment as if the blood of Christ might fall short. No, Jesus rather is talking in extreme terms to warn us about the dangers of sin that's left undealt with in our hearts. And he's also pointing us to the nearly extreme, certainly radical measures that we need to take to give attention to the dangers of sin within. In in, in other words, Would you, dear friend, be willing to take a lesser job or or even to forego or cut off a career-advancing opportunity if that itself might actually inflame in your heart an addiction that you have to greatness, to being first, Uh, If it might actually ruin your soul to pursue those things in the way that you presently have been. Or try this one. Would you be willing to get rid of your smartphone to cut it off? If it actually helped you to be more righteous and whole in your relationships, more present with your roommates or with your family. What sort of extreme measures have you been unwilling to take in order to tend to the sin that might be destroying you within. See, friends, worst of all, of course, about this uh, temptation towards greatness, uh, we're pointed to the dangers of our inability to even see Christ. Jesus tells the disciples who he is, and the disciples completely miss him. He says, I am the son of man and yet I must die. This is how I'm going to redeem the world. And yet in verse 20, 32, we're told, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. See, the greatest danger, of course, of living according to our first hood, living in lust of greatness, is that we cannot see God. Dear friends, do you see signs of this danger? Are you eager to uh, liberate your souls from these dangers? Well, Jesus offers us an alternative to firsthood. It's called servanthood. Our third point, the greatness of servanthood. We are called to be a servant of all. Jesus, we're told in verse 35, sat down and called the 12. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. He uses a word in the Greek diakonos that's often translated deacon. It means servant. It refers to a king's attendant. It's someone who takes orders from another. Someone who waits on tables or who even carries out menial duties. This is what Jesus said ought to characterize his people, followers of Christ. Waiters of tables, conductors of menial duties. This is an invitation to renounce our need for recognition, to renounce our need for control. This is an invitation as a servant to sacrifice for others. Kids, maybe hear some language that might help you understand what this means. Jesus is telling us to always be a helper. That even when you're in a room with your friends or maybe a brother or sister, that you're not just thinking about whether you're having fun, but you're always thinking about whether the other kids are too. Where you're living a life of sharing and giving, not just taking and receiving. Friends, here is an invitation to servanthood. Not only dying to power, but actually using the power that God has given to you to lift others up. This is cruciform love, promoting other people rather than myself. This is how Jesus teaches his disciples. He pulls a child in front of them to use that child as sort of an illustration And he says, we're told in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, he takes this child and he says, if you're to be a servant, well, what you need to do is to take one like this child. Children in that day in the ancient world were absolutely overlooked and forgotten. Uh, They had a low social status, quite different from our modern world in many ways. Jesus is saying, serve the overlooked and the forgotten. Serve and love the vulnerable. Lift them up. Use the capacity, the resources, the opportunities that you have to lift up the most vulnerable around you. That is how Jesus defines true greatness. Being servants that give and lift up rather than take and self-promote. This needs to be true of ourselves. It also needs to be true of our communities, both local and wider. See, a church cannot be said to be faithful to Christ unless it is most known for serving the most vulnerable. And this is also true as well. A nation cannot be said to be great unless it is most known for lifting up its most vulnerable, unless its citizens are best known as servants of all. Now, two points quickly of clarification that this isn't just about artificially lowering ourselves as much as we can. It's not about false humility, a sort of a counterfeit servanthood, sort of slumping your shoulders and pretending you're lowly. Rather, it's more about lifting others up, giving others the spotlight perhaps that is most naturally given to you. It's not about hiding from recognition as much as it's about spending time in those places that no one else wants to go to. That might mean that you love and serve in a way that results in your being overlooked. And it doesn't mean certainly that God won't call people into positions of prominence or even wealth or possession. The question is, are you living lustfully, gazing in that direction? Are you climbing over other people in order to attain those points of status and greatness? The question is, what is your greatest ambition? The question is, how will you use that position, that calling? And is it in the direction of servanthood? Again, Jesus redefines for us firsthood and greatness. And he tells us true greatness is to be a servant. True greatness is servanthood. Where we are together in community, constructing, reconstructing a world in which even the giving of a small cup of water to drink to someone who's thirsty counts as a great act. It's a calling to freedom and joy liberated from self-promotion and competition. And so we're invited to consider questions like this. If servanthood is to characterize all of Christ's followers, well, what kinds of leaders do we seek to follow? Is it those who are best known as servants? What kind of leaders do we ourselves seek to be? And I don't just mean if you have a form of public leadership, but also rather the different ways in which you exercise leadership in the home, in quiet ways, as a parent, as an older sibling to your younger siblings, as someone who's respected in your apartment building or among your friends on the block. What kind of leaders do we seek to be? Is it marked by servanthood? If you had all the power in the world, how would you use that power? If you had all the recognition in the world, what would you do with that? If you had all the influence in the world, how would you deploy it? What are we striving to be ourselves? And what in our community do we reward most? What do we celebrate? If you think about something that you are good at or something that you have that others don't have, who benefits from that gift from that possession, from that resource? Dearly beloved friends, do you know that we are called to servanthood? But how do we do this? We close with this thought, fourthly, the secret of servanthood, where do we go to get it? Well, first of all, we need to cultivate this inwardly so that it's not just an outward act. So that it's not just a a fraudulent charade where we're pretending to be servants of others, but we actually are miserable the whole time while doing it. We need to cultivate an an inner life of servanthood. See, because servanthood, friends, is not just another technique. It's the cultivation of kind of a, a quietness of heart that finds contentment simply in doing good and faithfully faithfully loving others rather than being recognized for faithfully loving others, of being well-known or well-treated because we're doing good. This is an invitation to quietness, even to solitude, Zach Eswine, in a wonderful book that he's written, talks about this ambition for a quiet life that we need to cultivate, a willingness to be overlooked out there. He poses this great question, but how can we find a stamina for being overlooked in the world as servants unless quiet also describes a Sabbath of the heart moment by moment with God? We don't fear the loss of worldly attention only because we enjoy company with true treasure, His attention is enough. Do you hear what Zach Asmine is saying? If we're called to renounce control, we need to replace that with a deep faith and trust that God is in control. If we want to renounce recognition, then we need to believe deep in our hearts that God recognizes us. If we want to uh, renounce, live a life renouncing worldly attention and greatness, then we need to know that we have His attention. His eyes are upon us. And that in his kingdom, he counts us as his children already to be truly great. Verse 41, we're reminded that we belong to Christ. We're told again and again that we're so intimately bound up with Christ that when someone receives us, they in fact receive Christ. So intimately has Christ identified himself with us. And don't you know the love of this Christ is the love of one who is called a suffering servant. See, Jesus isn't just one who gives us a model of service. He's the one who actually stooped low in order to meet you and me in our need, in order to rescue and save us. Jesus is the son of man who holds all authority, dominion and power, who reigns in a kingdom whose kingdom will never come to an end. And yet he devotes, devotes the full force of all that power and authority in our direction to lift us up out of the mire of our sinfulness and our helplessness, pulling us up out of our despair. He loves us. He serves us, you and me. And so, therefore, our lives are changed. Becoming people who, out of the power of Christ's service, become servants ourselves. Seeing not only his example as a servant, but whose hearts are being turned inside out. Directing all of our attention, all of our energy towards God and towards our neighbor. Away from ourselves towards those immediately around us. Oh friends, do you see the servant of Jesus serving you on the cross? The son of man who died for you and me, who rose for you and me, and who now calls us out of the power of the cross to be servants like him. Friends, will you receive this invitation? Will you receive this promise of joy and freedom? as we're called to live a life as servants. Embrace the servanthood of the cross. Embrace foremost the servant, our suffering King, Jesus, who loves you, who died for you and rose again for you. Let's pray.